right, we have uh, a few announcements just to remind you about the event, the candidate greet and meet and greet on Saturday morning. Uh, they're going to begin speaking at 8 o'clock, so you might want to get here at 7.30. We're going to have a few refreshments things so you can uh, uh, get a little coffee or whatever, but you can't bring it in here, but you can uh, talk to people outside in the fellowship hall. Uh, Alexandra uh, Del Morale Miller, who's the Republican candidate for Harris County Judge. Both of these are county positions, and this is very important to understand uh, their role. And, and that t decisions they make really do touch us uh, very significantly if we live in the city or in the county. Also, a reminder, a week from Saturday at 11 a.m., there's a memorial service for Jay Collins. And then Chafer Seminary Fall Registration begins on August the 1st, which is coming up in about uh, 12 days or so. And uh, if you are... Uh, if if you're at West Houston Bible Church and you can take up to two courses uh, tuition-free, registration fee is waived if you register by August the 7th. So there are always some good courses. I'll take a look at what's being off offered, but they are always good courses. You can also just simply audit. And the other thing you need to remember is Vacation Bible School began today. You can look around and see all of the decorations and the fact that we have a lot of chairs gone because of the uh, room for the kids to uh, be active, so it's, I feel lopsided. So we got Bob back here in the back balancing out everybody else, so it's, uh, and, and I'm only going to run, oh, Bob, you're over there, I guess I'm going to have to turn the other screen on, so we'll see if that even comes on. Okay, so that's it. And pray for camper, camp, for Vacation Bible School the next couple of days. That it's we've got lots of young kids, and it's really important for these kids to understand the gospel and we hope get saved uh, during Vacation Bible School. Also, a camperete. Camperete is this week, and that is um, we pray for safety, pray for wisdom for the counselors as they talk to kids because a lot of these kids have. Um, some of these kids have some significant problems in their lives that they need to talk to somebody and get some biblical wisdom on. So we pray for them, pray for the leaders, that they can get rest and have plenty of energy as well for the camp. So uh, with that, we will uh, prepare to study the Word this evening. So we need to make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can... Um, confess sin if necessary, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, so thankful we can come together and come to your throne of grace and know that we have our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our high priest and our intercessor, and that God the Holy Spirit as well is interceding for us and uh, cleaning up our prayers so often we don't know exactly how to pray. 
Father, we do pray for several in the congregation, extended congregation, who are dealing with serious health problems. Uh, Some have COVID, some have other serious problems, some have cancer. We pray that you would give their doctors wisdom, and we pray that you would uh, give them great opportunities to share the gospel and their faith and trust in your plan for their life during, during this uh, during this time of, of illness. And Father, we also pray for Vacation Bible School this week, and we pray for the clarity of the gospel. And we're just so thankful for so many of the, those who are volunteering to help out and so many of the, of the workers, and we pray that you would just give them uh, great wisdom in talking to the kids and presenting the gospel. Same thing for the staff at Camp Arete. Keep them safe. Watch over them. Uh, give them uh, wisdom as they talk to the uh, campers up there and also to one another. And pray for Jeff as he oversees and directs the whole operation. So, Father, we just put them in your hands. And, Father, we pray that you will help us as we focus on your word this evening, that we might be strengthened and encouraged. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, tonight we're going to focus on how God is refining Israel while he's refining both the army that's going to deal with the Midianites, but he's also going to, uh, I guess we're not going to see that screen anyway because there's something in the way, so I'll just turn that off. Uh, So they're going to be refining the army as well as um, refining Gideon. And Gideon's a mixed bag. And uh, this is always a great story to tell kids. But there's what I, I remember hearing this many times uh, around the campfire when I was growing up at uh, Camp Penile, and I just loved the story. But rarely does anyone ever put the story of the victory over the Midianites into the context, which is that it is, in a spiritual sense, a Pyrrhic victory, because this means that it's a victory that comes at great cost, and the cost is that that even though Gideon learns to trust God, he doesn't trust him for long. So as we have seen in Judges, this is the story about how a nation, how a culture uh, becomes paganized, how they become, uh, their culture just gets perverted. And we have to understand that, that culture, and culture isn't talking about what is often referred to as high culture, art, music, opera, symphony, things like that. And they, culture is everything that, a pe- that people do, how they relate to each other, how they, and that would involve politics, how they uh, look at morality. All of that is really uh, the result of their, their values. And where do they get their values? How do they know their values? And so as we've seen, and if you remember the chart I've used with, um, with the iceberg, that that what we see in terms of behavior is just the only part of the iceberg that we see that's above the surface. The rest of it is is below the surface. And so what supports everything is how people view God. And that from that you get the um, it leads to their knowledge. How do they know their values and what are their values? And if they don't have the Judeo Christian God and if they don't understand the Bible uh, in a literal, historical, grammatical way, then it is going to affect their sense of right and wrong, their va- their ethical values, their moral values. And when you take God out of the picture and you take the Bible out of the picture, 
then you don't have a basis for right and wrong. And that you eventually have to say, well, who determines what's right and wrong? And the worst thing is possible, well, both, both extremes are worst, but the wor- one of the worst is that everybody decides what's right in their own eyes, and that's what's going on in Israel at this time. That's what's going on here. And when everybody does what's right in their own eyes, then you have a complete breakdown of, of ethical order. And when you have a breakdown of ethical order, you're going to have a complete breakdown of the culture. You're going to have a complete breakdown of politics, relationships. And it's going to be an earthquake that is going to send tsunamis through every institution, uh, every one of the divine institutions of personal responsibility, uh, marriage, family, uh, government, nations and and israel and it's a cycle you reject all those things and and if you watch what's going on today there is a war in our country against the divine institutions and the more they're destroyed the more there is an attack and the more there's an attack the more they're destroyed and it's just this this cycle that's going on and ultimately the only thing that breaks it is going to be a return to God, a return to biblical truth and biblical values, because there is no other foundation for life, for personal life, for a a nation. And many people are pointing that out right now. In just the last few days, I've run across a number of quotes from founding fathers who said that basically the Constitution is designed for a moral people. And if people aren't moral, they're not responsible and if they're not responsible, then a, a, a government that is based on uh, the involvement of people in the governing process is going to collapse. And that's, that's where we are, except for a number of mostly conservatives who get their values from the Bible. And this is so important for us to be involved and pray. That's why hosting some of these events is not is not me or the church saying these are the people you have to vote for. It's not us saying that this is the ultimate solution, but it's part of the immediate solution to be informed, to know what's happening, and to try to choose leaders that are getting their values uh, from the Scripture. Uh, that doesn't mean they're always going to be Christians. That doesn't mean they're always going to be Christians that we might agree with, but that ultimately they're getting their values out of a Judeo-Christian world worldview. That was true about the Founding Fathers. Not all of them were necessarily regenerated uh, believers. Not all of the early uh, presidents that we had were believers reading about Andrew Jackson recently, and he was a believer, and he said some very positive things about the Word of God, but he was not saved until after he was president. He was saved very late in life, and um, and that made a huge difference because he didn't have that foundation uh, earlier in his life. So it, it really depends upon learning the Word of God, and even when people know the Word of God, they fail and sometimes fail miserably, but they have success in some areas, and that's what we see referenced in Hebrews 11:32 to 34, where Gideon is mentioned. And we read this. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, "What more shall I say?" He's already talked about uh, uh, about uh, Cain and Abel. He has talked about 
uh, Abraham, Noah and Abraham and Isaac, and now he just summarizes through other Old Testament uh, spiritual heroes, and they weren't spiritual heroes their whole life. They had one time, as we really see this in, in with Gideon, it's just this episode where he rises to the top at a critical moment, and then he lays the seed for self-destruction and the further division and collapse of the nation. So it, the lesson there is we trust in God, but we can't put our ultimate hope in man. So we read in Hebrews, And what more shall I say, for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. Now we've talked about Barak already and seen that he was uh, spiritually weak, and we haven't gotten to Jephthah or Samson, but they do some uh, pretty horrible things. But they do trust God at a good point. And we learn that uh, they're summarized in verse 33, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. That, of course, would be Daniel. Daniel's not even mentioned in that list. Um, He's just part of the prophets. Uh, Quench the violence of fire. Escape the edge of the sword. That would apply to Gideon and um, as well as some others. Out of weakness were made strong. That would apply to Gideon as well. Became valiant in battle and turned to flight the armies of the aliens. And this is the result in the in Gideon, in Samson, in Jephthah, not Barak, but in three of those four, they were all had uh, some sort of empowerment by God the Holy Spirit. And I we went through a study of that showing that this was not in relation to their spiritual life. It didn't make them spiritual in the way that we have it in the New Testament where we're indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, filled by God the Holy Spirit, baptized by the Spirit. None of that was going on. This is all related to the theocratic kingdom. The theocratic kingdom is the Jewish kingdom that was established by the Mosaic law that was a theocracy. And so it's referred to as the theocratic kingdom because it's a theocracy where God is the ultimate ruler in the Mosaic law. So we saw in uh, Judges 6.34 that the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and immediately the first consequence of that is that he blows the shofar and he gathers his clan around him. So I want you to just observe here that with the initial uh, call to arms, that it's the clan of the Abizrites who are part of of his uh, of his family. They gather behind him. Another couple of verses to be reminded of is in Psalm fifty-six, four and eleven. In God I will put my In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? And we saw last time that a big problem in this army is that because of the lack of values, because of their relativism, because that every man was doing what's right in their own eyes, they easily succumbed to fear. They had nothing that stabilized their emotions. And so in Psalm 56, 4 and 11, we have two promises that are very important for helping us uh, in times of crisis. In God, I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. 
what can man do to me? And, of course, Zechariah 4, 6, we looked at last time, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So as believers, we have to walk by the spirit. We have to abide in Christ. And we have an empowerment and an enablement by the Holy Spirit that is distinctive for this for this church age. So we looked at the setting also last time that Jeroboam, that was the alternate name for Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped um, beside the well of Herod so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. It's important to realize Scripture, especially in the historical books, is grounded on space-time history. You can go to these places. That's why I like to show you the pictures, because you can look at religious literature uh, and and th- from any religion, and they talk about places and events and uh, people that never lived. Uh, there's no historical, geographical, archaeological evidence of the claims that are made, but the Bible is grounded in history. And so we may not be able to find a mention outside of the Bible of Abraham, but everything that is said in the Bible about Abraham and his time period Uh, archaeology has demonstrated is exactly accurate to that time period, the late second millennium, or actually the late third millennium B.C., between 2100 uh, B.C. and 2000 B.C., when Abraham lived, that that reflects the culture that we know at that that time. So we looked at at Gideon, and Gideon is going to take his... uh, his army, and they go to the well of Herod, which sort of foreshadows some of the issues because the word Herod, which is the name for the well, comes from the Hebrew verb Harad, which means to quake, to move in fear, to tremble, and it emphasizes the fear that is still present in Gideon. He's got levels of anxiety, but also the people because there's going to be the first test first refining test that God brings is going to remove those who are fearful, those who are anxious, and they're going to be the ones who are sent home. Don't you think it what made Gideon's heart fall when he saw 10,000 people pack their bags and leave? And then God said, well, you still have too many. Now, the other interesting thing I wanted to point out here is that we're told that he has the Abizrites with him. So that's part of the group of people who were with him. But we're also told in 635 that he had sent messengers to the tribes of Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. These are tribes that uh, had their, their, allot, their land allotment was on, the, um, was on the west side of the Jordan River, the area covering the Jezreel Valley, the area north, the area along the Mediterranean coast up to the area around the Sea of Galilee. All of that was allotted to these tribes. So he's not going south to Judah and to Benjamin and to the uh, tribes furthest away. He is sticking with those who are right in the general, uh, general vicinity. And they... 
uh, the Midianites have encamped in the valley of Jezreel. So here's our map. Uh, showed you this last time. The Jezreel Valley runs from uh, northwest to southeast, and it's along the um, Kishon River that was more of a river then. Now it's an intermittent stream because so much water is being uh, taken off for the purpose of, of uh, uh, irrigation. So here is another topographical view that shows up really well. This is the Jezreel Valley. It shows where the Kishon River runs. And this is the area of action. Here is the Ein Harad, that is uh, Hebrew for the spring of Harad. And this is uh, located right here. And it's near uh, just south of Hill of Mora. The text said that, that um, the... Uh, Midianites were north of them, so they're going to camp right down here. And this is a, a, a vast opening here where a lot of history in the Old Testament took place. also showed you this map as well. And again, you see uh, Mora is north of Herod Springs. Now, Gideon's, uh, God's plan was to make it clear to Gideon that Gideon wasn't winning the battle. God was going to win the battle. And there's warnings uh, in Deuteronomy to the Israelites that that they need to be careful not succumb to pride and think that they are the ones who have the victory. It is only God who has has the victory. So the Lord directs them, uh, Gideon, and he's going to uh, make sure that they can't take any credit. As we pointed out last time, there are people... Uh, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying my own hand has saved me. So he's going to uh, remove any anything that would make it appear as if this was accomplished on their own. And I pointed out the ratio here that initially Midian had 135,000 according to the 8th chapter. Gideon had 32,000. That works out to be uh, about 4 to 1, which are tough odds, but it, uh, some, somebody with a small army that's outnumbered 4 to 1 can easily win still. And so God is going to make sure that it's going to be a little more difficult. First thing he does is he has the, anyone who's fearful, and you're sort of surprised Gideon doesn't leave. Uh, anyone fearful can go home. So 10,000 leave, and this changes the odds to 13.5 to 1. But God says it's still too many. So he's going to come up with another test, and that's what we're going to be looking at in just a minute. And this test will reduce the number uh, to 300. And so the odds now are going to be 450 to 1, and God says, well, that's pretty good. That's in my favor because God plus 1 is a majority. And we have to remember that whenever we're faced with any kind of challenge uh, challenge in life. So God gives the analysis here of what the problem is, and he does, and it's arrogance on the part of Israel, and he's not going to allow them the opportunity to claim the victory on their own. And God, second, we saw that God knows that Gideon and many of the men with him are, are trembling in fear. And so the first thing is they're not trusting him because, as we saw last time, fear and faith are mutually exclusive. 
And so God is going to make sure that those who can't trust him are going to be excluded. So uh, verse 3 says, uh, God says, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people uh, returned and 10,000 remained. So he he gets rid of the fearful. They're left with the 22,000, but that's still, uh, still too many. The problem is fear and trembling. And then the second test, to thin them out some more, God said the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them there. Now, that's a very important word there. This is the Hebrew word saraf, and it doesn't mean to test. There are other words for testing that are sometimes used as a synonym for this word. This is a technical metallurgical word for refining metal ore. And God refines his people. And when you're refining metal, you are putting it into a furnace to smelt it, and that burns off the impurities. So God uses this as a metaphor that he takes us through tests and trials in order to teach us to rely upon him and to burn off the impurities of uh, of sinful reliance upon self. So he says... The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will refine them for you there. So he's got to refine the army and get rid of the dross, the excess, that which is not needed. And so he is going to refine them. And he says, Then it will be that of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And of whomever I say to you, This one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he, that is Gideon, brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on their knees to drink. Now, I've seen some and read some things where some commentators are trying to figure out how they would do this, and it's pretty simple that if you are have had any any experience in the outdoors and you're walking along a stream and you want to get a drink of water, you can just reach down with your hand and scoop up some water and drink the water out of your hand and you're still focused on where you're going and you're still moving uh, you're still moving forward. That's lapping up the water as a dog laps. And it becomes clear in the next couple of verses that only three hundred do that and it's the three hundred who lap like a dog who are going to be the ones who go into uh, into battle. When we look at this word saraf, it's used a number of interesting ways in the Old Testament. It's used in Isaiah 125 with this metaphorical usage applied to the spiritual life of Israel when they were in rebellion. Isaiah 1 is basically a, an indictment of the nation. Isaiah 1 is not, it's not in chronological order. Isaiah 6 is before Isaiah 1, but Isaiah 6 comes as sort of a flashback following Isaiah 1 through 5, which lays out the indictment, the indictment for their idolatry. God says, I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross and take away all of your alloy. I'll refine you. Uh, refine away your dross. I'll burn it away. Jeremiah 9, 7, Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, 
Behold, I will refine them and try them, for how shall I deal with the daughter of my people? God is going to refine, just as he would refine Israel to deal with the sin in their life, he's going to do the same thing with us. But this also has an eschatological meaning. It refers to the future and what God will do with Israel in the end of the tribulation period. This refers to the time period around the campaign of Armageddon. I will bring the one-third through the fire. So uh, there's been some misrepresentations of this uh, in the Jewish community that Christians just want Jesus to come back because two-thirds of the Jews are going to be killed when Jesus comes back. That's how they represent it. But see, this is an Old Testament passage. And, you know, it's interesting. I've had a couple people mention this to me or ask me questions about this. I say, well, this is a Jewish prophecy in Zechariah. This isn't something that Christians came up with. This is in the uh, this is in Zechariah, and it's talking about the end times when the Messiah comes, that God is going to refine the people then just as he did in Isaiah and in Jeremiah. And God is going to bring this kind of judgment on the Jewish people. Uh, there have been some Christians who have been um, uh, just, they've had some harsh things said about them because they've made the point that that it was, Uh, through the Holocaust, that God was able to cause a lot of Jews in Europe and America to turn to look at the Middle East and go home to Israel, and that God used the Holocaust to bring his people home. They say, oh, that's terrible. How can you justify the Holocaust that way? It's not a justification. You go back to the Old Testament. God did lots of things like that to Israel to purify them and to get them to look to him and trust him and to eventually do his will. More more often, God had to use the stick rather than the carrot. And this is seen again and again in the books of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. So in Zechariah 13, 9, God says, I will bring the one-third. This is the remnant. These are those who have trusted in the Messiah, that is Jesus, who is the Jewish Messiah. I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined. They will be purified in the fires of the tribulation. Now, there are fires in the tribulation to some degree in some of the judgments, but this is a term that is used metaphorically uh, throughout um, throughout the prophets, that there is a refiner's fire, from God that purifies the land at the end of the tribulation. That's a reference to to the campaign of Armageddon. Uh, God says, I will test them as gold is tested. Now, the word for refine is our word saraf. The word for testing is is another word, but it refers to testing. It says, they will call on my name. We've studied this. This is when they are down... Um, down in the area of Jordan, across the Jordan, uh, where those who listened to Jesus as the Messiah said when he saw these signs, that is the abomination of desolation, you will flee, flee to the mountains. And so they will flee to that area of Basra and that area around Petra on the uh, east side of the Jordan River. And here Zechariah says, they will call on my name. This is when 
Jesus will return when a third of the Jews, these Jews that are across the river, when they call upon his name. That's what he says at the end of uh, Matthew 23. They'll call on my name and I will answer them and I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, Yahweh is my God. Malachi 3.2 references the same thing. It says, but who can endure the day of his coming? That's the coming of the Messiah at the end of Daniel's 70th week. And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. Notice it's a simile, uh, not a metaphor here. It's a stated comparison. He is like a refiner's fire. That's the word we have here, uh, saraf. So it's, it's testing, it's purifying, and that's what God is doing is he's, he's purifying uh, Gideon's army and uh, getting rid of those uh, who would be a distraction so that he gets it down uh, to that point where it's going to be clear that God is the one who gives them victory. So we're told in verse 6, and uh, the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. If you get down on your knees, your focus is off of your objective, you're taking your time. Uh, if you're focused, you're lapping up the water, you're prepared. And so these 300 are the ones who God is going to uh, choose to use against the Midianites. Verse 7, then the Lord said to Gideon, by the 300 men who lapped. So it's very clear the 300 are those who lapped, the others are the ones who knelt. He says, by the 300, I will save you. This isn't soteriological salvation. This is just deliverance. And it, it's unfortunate that so many places in the Old Testament, the word for save, yasha, is translated saved instead of deliver because saved always gives people the idea of personal salvation and justification. God says, by the 300, I will deliver you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the people go, every man to his place. Now, it looks like that means to go home, but I'll show you in just a minute that it doesn't mean to go home. It means just to go back to their tents and not go into the battle. So the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hands, and he sent away all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent and retained those 300 men. Now, the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So here's this great aerial photograph showing that, that the, the main uh, mountains, you're up not, you're not quite at Mount Carmel here, but you're close, looking across the valley of Esdralon, the valley of Jezreel, the valley of Armageddon, and you've got... Uh, Mount Tavor here, Mount Tavor. You've got the Hill of Morah. This is the area where the Midianites were camped. And then you see a flat level valley and then Mount Gilboa. I showed you two other pictures last time, but I've tried to combine them this time so that you could see them together. You see Mount Tavor. This is where Deborah and Barak gathered their troops to fight the Canaanites. Then you have the Hill of Morah in the middle, which is where... Uh, where you have uh, the, the Midianites. And then across this valley, you have Endor. It's located out here. And um, 
several other important Old Testament towns and settlements. Jezreel are located out here. And over here is Mount Gilboa. This is where Saul uh, is going to be defeated by the, by the Philistines. But right down in this area is Herod Springs. And so here's a good aerial to show you what that looks like. Uh, it's, there's a lot of greenery here, a lot of trees, because you have this uh, spring that is feeding uh, into the area, feeding into the Kishon River. And then this is uh, the Tel Jezreel, which I mentioned, mentioned a minute ago. But here you have a picture that was taken somewhere between uh, 1920 and 1933. This is about 100 years ago. And this is what the valley looked like. And you're looking across the Jezreel Valley to the hill of Mora. And on the far right, you have, uh, you have uh, uh, Gilboa. This is another picture of uh, just an aerial. And you're looking right down, right down in this area is where the, the uh, cave is, where the spring comes out. And you see there's a swimming pool here, and they have various other things going on here. This is the uh, kibbutz at Ein Harad. This is a very important location because just across the highway, which would be off to, off to my left, th- there's a kibbutz, and at that kibbutz you have the, um, uh, the headquarters of, um, gosh, the name slips me right now. Uh, he was a uh, British general. At its time he was a colonel, and he taught night fighting to the um, uh, to a lot of the Jewish fighters, they were being attacked at night. This is back in the 30s, and they were being attacked at night by the by the Arabs, and they wouldn't go out and fight at night. So these were men like um, Moshe Dayan and others, and so he studied Gideon and decided that because Gideon went out at night and fought, uh, they should too. And they're right there at this at this same uh, same site. So I can't believe I can't um, I can't think of his name right now. But anyway, um, this is the uh, spring, the dark place right here. That's the opening to the spring, and now there's not a lot of water there because so much of it is used in uh, immigration. I excuse me, not irrigation, not immigration. And then this is what it looked like a hundred years ago. This this uh, photo here was probably taken. In the late 1800s or early 1900s, so that's over 100 years ago, and there's just a tremendous amount of water that was there, uh, which you can see in those photos. But right now, uh, not so much. So this is what it looks like now, and that's the picture on the right, but the picture on the left is a little over 100, 100 years ago. So there was a tremendous amount of water here, uh, flowing into the Kishon River, and this is where they could have e- easily get distracted uh, by all of the water, and, la- and instead of lapping it up, they were kneeling down and and uh, drinking their fill. So this is a picture of your um, uh, IDF soldiers who are uh, reenacting uh, Gideon's men at this particular time. So. We come to Judges chapter 7, I mean, uh, verse 6, and the number of those who lapped were 300. And God promises that it's going to be by these 300. And he sends everyone else to their place 
which is defined in verse 8 as his tent. So that tells you they're not going home. They're going just to their tent. So they're still in the geographical area of the battle. And they take their provisions, and this is the word at sedah, which is a Hebrew word for food. So they're, they're taking their provisions and their trumpets in their hands, and these are the 300. And where's the mention? What's missing from that? They're taking their food, and they're taking their trumpets, their shofar. What's missing? Well, where, where's their Tavor rifle? Where's, where's their M16 or M3? Where are their swords? Where are their shields? Where's their slings? None of those are mentioned. They have just at this point, it's just their food and their shofars. And they're preparing to go against Gideon. So in verse 9 we read, It happened on the same night that the Lord said to him. Now this is an interesting little interlude because what you expect after reading verse 8 is you expect to go right into the story of the attack, which doesn't take place until you get down to verse 16. What is going on here? Well, what we infer from this is Gideon's confidence in the Lord still isn't where it should be. He still has a lot of reservations, and so God is going to give him an interesting, uh, an interesting shot of confidence here, and it's going to come from the Midianites themselves. This is a, a, a strange and unusual uh, interlude right here. And there's going to be this conversation that Gideon is going to overhear. So God speaks to Gideon in some way, and he says, Arise, in other words, get up, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. This is at least the fourth time God has promised that he is going to give the uh, victory to Gideon. But as you can see, Gideon has a shaky confidence in the Lord. And so uh, the Lord says, well, if you're afraid to go down, the Lord recognizes clearly that he's, he's still doubting and he's still fearful. He says, if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. If you don't want to go by yourself, then you take your servant with you so you, you won't uh, give in to fear. And listen to what is said in the camp. So you've got this huge camp of Midianite, Amalekite, and other soldiers, and they are right there on the uh, at the base of Mount Mora, and he's going to go down and sneak up on them and get close enough to where he's going to hear a conversation between two of the sentries. And God says that he listened to them, and afterward, your hands will be strengthened. Another way of saying you're going to have courage, you're going to have confidence. This is the, the last time God is giving him a little extra shot of, of confidence. And this is just the grace of God. And we must recognize that God, is, notice God is not being judgmental. He's not making fun of Gideon and his lack of faith or lack of confidence each time God, God just gives him a little more assurance of his, the truth of his promise. He meets us where we are. He doesn't say, okay, you've got to grow up a lot before I'm going to deal with you. 
you've got to you've got to quit being a little whiny, fearful, uh, anxiety-driven Christian. God treats Gideon in grace. Gideon wasn't a Christian, but we are, and that's what I'm saying. God's not going to say to you, you've got to grow up a little bit, or I'm not going to deal with you. He deals with us in grace. So uh, he says you're going to hear, what you hear will give you confidence. It will strengthen you to, to go down. You shall be strengthened to go down against the camp, which is, means he's talking about attacking the camp. So then Gideon goes down with his servant Pura to the outpost of the armed men in the camp. So he's going down to where the sentries are. And then we're reminded by the writer of the significance of this and how dangerous this is in verse 12. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number as the sand by the seashore in multitude. So this is a dangerous situation that Gideon is. And he goes down, and it's nighttime, so they're in the dark, and they have to sneak up to the line. And as they do, they overhear the conversation between two sentries. And one man is telling a dream that he has to the other one. And he says, I've had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned, and the tent collapsed. Then his companion answered and said, he immediately gives the interpretation. This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash. How do you get a loaf of bread being a symbol for a sword or a military attack. There's a lot of questions about this. But he, but God's given him the interpretation, but, there, but there's no way you would get from the loaf of barley bread to the sword of Gideon other than God telling you this is what this means. And he says, uh, the, the bread is the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel, and into his hand God has delivered uh, Midian. Now, this is, this is two unbelievers, two pagans, two Midianites who are having this conversation. There are a few times in Scripture when God has given a dream to unbelievers. He did it with Pharaoh. He did it with Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he... Uh, does it with Balaam in Numbers 22 to 24, who's a, a, a Gentile. But very rarely does he communicate to non-Israelites uh, through any kind of vision or oracle. Uh, but the the dream seems kind of weird. There's this loaf of bread or a cake of barley bread that tumbles into the Midianites' camp and, and smashes a tent so hard it, it collapses uh, the, the tent. And so it makes us wonder a lot of things about about what is really going on here and how this can really um, the, the the dream can fit the interpretation, but God defines it. So uh, God tell allows this one to uh, to interpret it that way. So 
Gideon hears this, and then after the one century explains it to the other one, the first one says, well, this is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of, of Joash, a man of Israel, into his hand God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. So now God has promised to Gideon just prior to this that he's going to deliver them. Now he hears it in the interpretation of this dream from a Midianite sentry, and this is finally going to give him uh, great confidence. And verse 15 is the turning point in the whole narrative of chapter 7. So it was that when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, that he worshipped. Now, what's so significant about that? It's the only time in the whole book of Judges that anybody worships or is said to worship. So Gideon worshipped the Lord. And this, as we see in places like when uh, Eliezer is sent to find a wife for Isaac, and when he finds Rebekah, he worships and gives thanks to God. This doesn't mean that he broke out into a praise chorus. Uh, this doesn't mean that he even sang. It just means that he gave a prayer of thanks uh, to God. And he goes back to the camp of Israel, and what does he say? He finally really, really gets it. He, his faith is strengthened. He has confidence in God, and he says, Rise up, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the 300. So he calls upon them to rise up, and they will have the victory. So now we see his, his tactics here. His tactics is, seems pretty basic. He's going to divide his 300 into three separate companies of 100 men each. And what do they have? They have their shofar. They have empty pitchers. This is just a, a, a clay, um, like a clay pitcher or a clay bowl or something that the, the torch would fit inside of. And the torches are inside the pitcher so they can hold it and uh, eventually light them. And so he says to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the edge of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the shofar, I and all who are with me, then you also blow the shofar. Where are their weapons? They've got a torch in one hand, and they've got a shofar in the other hand. And it's really difficult to fire your bow or sling your sling or throw a javelin. So they are unarmed. That tells us that th these 300 are going into this battle against 135,000, and they have come to the same conclusion that Gideon has, and that is that the battle is the Lord, and they can trust God to deliver them. So they're going into this battle, and they're, they're, they're spread out across the front and, and a, a semicircle uh, surrounding the Midianites. Now, what's going on behind, kind of as a background to understand this is it's it's pitch dark at night. You just we don't know whether there was a moon at night or any kind of light, but it was typically dark. And 
they are moving into position. If there was a night attack and you had, let's say, 300 companies attacking you, each company would have their, their bugler. They're blowing the shofar. And each company would have one leader who's got a torch. So when they see three, they hear 300 shofars and they see 300 torches, they're not thinking 300 people. They're thinking 300 companies that are attacking. And God is using his own special psychological warfare against them. And this happens several other times in the scripture. For example, when um, under uh, Jehoshaphat, uh, the, uh, Judah is fighting the Moabites, and they're down near the Valley of Barakah, and they're going into battle, and the, uh, uh, Judah is outnumbered. And when God says, get up and be prepared to fight at dawn, and he causes some sort of optical illusion to take place so that when the Moabites hear the Jews attacking, they see it's like a mirage of blood that's on the ground. And they think that there's already been a huge defeat, and so they start fighting each other and then turn around to flee. So God can give the victory uh, many times without uh, any sort of strategic, tactical, or technological, excuse uh, me, uh, technological, technical, excuse me, technological uh, excess. So that Israel has nothing. It's like Daniel, uh, excuse me, David fighting Goliath. He's all he's got is his sling, and Goliath has everything on his side. But the battle is the Lord's. And I keep thinking about this. When I pray for Ukraine, that here you have Ukraine is like David and Russia is Goliath, and God can cause the Russian troops to do all kinds of mistakes, and which I think he has already. And we need to, now my prayer is that God would cause them to continue to defeat themselves through their own mistakes until eventually God will uh, give Ukraine the victory. So what Gideon says is, when I blow the trumpet, you blow all of your trumpets, and then you shout, of the Lord and of Gideon. The word sword is not present. It is simply a, a Hebrew preposition uh, which has the idea of possession, that we are of the Lord, we are the Lord's, we are Gideon's. And they go into battle. Now, a lot of people make a point here that that in comparison with statements made by Moses, the battle is the Lord's, statements made by David, the battle is the Lord's, there's no mention of their role. So this is perhaps a little foreshadowing that uh, Gideon is trying to capture a little bit of the credit uh, for the victory. So as a result of this, the men under Gideon's leadership go down, sneak across the uh, uh, to the camp of the Midianites in the beginning of the middle watch, which would be sometime around 2 or 3 or 4 in the morning. And uh, they blow their trumpets, broke their pitchers that were in their hands, uh, which held their torches, and they held the torches in their left hands and their trumpets in their right hands for blowing. And which hand did they use for their sword? They don't have any weapons. Interesting, the battle's the Lord. So on this uh, map, we have a tactical map. Here's the Hill of Morah. Here are the troops of the Midianites, 
And so the the uh, Israelites under Gideon come across. They surround uh, the Midianites, and then they attack. And then the Midianites are going to head, uh, flee rather, to the southeast. Now, we know they went to the southeast because they're going to cross the Jordan, and they're going to cross over to the other side of the Jordan. But there are some t- uh, locations that are mentioned uh, in the text, and frankly, nobody knows where they are. So they're not listed on any maps because we're uncertain of their actual location. So here again is a map showing uh, the attack, the three companies, the 300 men, and then the blue line here uh, chasing the Midianites back across the Jordan. So we're told, verse 21, every man stood in his place all around the camp, and that's all the Israelites, and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. That's the Midianites. So you have the Israelites stand their ground, Midianites flee. Verse 22, when the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion. See, God just confuses their thinking. They get all disoriented, and they just start killing uh, each other, and they fled towards uh, Beth Acacia towards Zerera and as far as the border of Abel, Mahola by Tabath. So we have four geographical locations. They're not mentioned anywhere on the map. You don't see them, do you? Nobody knows where they are. But they're somewhere in the vicinity of the, of the Jordan Valley. Now, what happens after this is, is really interesting. What we've seen is the high point, or just about the high point of Gideon's role as a judge. And then we start seeing some cracks in what's going on. The men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh and pursued the Midianites. Did Gideon say, well, Lord, what do we do now? No. Did God authorize any more than the 300? No. So Gideon is taking the initiative to call in the reserve troops, the 22,000 or however many that were left behind, and to come and to pursue the, the Midianites. And then he sends out messengers in verse 24 to the mountains of Ephraim. This is in the hill country of Samaria, And Ephraim hasn't been mentioned yet. And he says, Come down against the Midianites, seize from them the watering places as far as Bethbara and Jordan. In other words, seize all the the watering holes, seize all the springs, and that way they're not going to have access to any water or food. And so all the men of Ephraim respond to that call, gather together, and they seize the watering places. Uh, But they're they're not real happy. Uh, what's happened is that the Abizrites gathered with Gideon, his own clan, which we saw in 634. In 635, it mentioned Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. Naphtali and Asher are mentioned in 723, and the addition of Manasseh, that was the tribe that half the tribe had uh, land on the east side of the Jordan and the other uh, on the west side of the Jordan. And so they're the ones who are doing the pursuing. And when um, then there's a, a fight, and they, that is the Ephraimites, captured two princes of the Midianites. 
two of their royalty, Oreb and Zeev. They kill Oreb at what later becomes known as the Rock of Oreb. And Zeev they killed at what will later be called the winepress of Zeev. They pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeev to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. So at this point, you would think that there is a great victory celebration. But the Ephraimites are irritated with Gideon. And this is where we see, this is another sample of just a, sort of a high point in Gideon's uh, career. And this is about as far, it, not at the end yet, there's going to be one more high point. Uh, but he shows a lot of tact and he shows a lot of wisdom at this point in dealing with this uh, problem with the Ephraimites because they have... Um, taken offense at the fact that they didn't in, he didn't invite them to the battle to begin with. So the men of Ephraim said to him, Why have you done this by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites? And they reprimanded him sharply. That's a mild way of putting it. They just gave him holy hell. They were really angry with him. So he said to them, well, what have I done now in comparison with you? Notice how he plays down his own role. He shows some humility here, and I can say that because when he's offered the kingship, uh, he will deny it. He will reject it, which shows that he does have an element of humility here. It doesn't last long, but he has it at this point. And he says, what have I done now in, in comparison uh, with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? And basically what he is saying here is, isn't the best of Ephraim far better than anything that Abiezer, that the Abizrites uh, have done? Uh, you know, you, you, the Abizrites just have some crumbs compared to the wonderful things that uh, that. Ephraim has accomplished. And look at what you have done. You've delivered into your hands the princes of Midian and Oreb and Zeb. And what was I able to do in comparison? And so their anger, anger subsides, and they are, um, they begin to relax. Well, this is just about the high watermark of Gideon's, um, uh, of Gideon's success and his trust in God, but we have one more thing to cover uh, when we get further into chapter 8 because there's still going to be another battle that takes place starting in verse 4, and we'll come back to look at that next time. Uh, Father, thank you for this opportunity to study this. Be reminded of the importance of trusting you that the battle is yours. It's not ours. The battle doesn't go to the one who runs the fastest. The battle doesn't go to the one who is the strongest, the tallest, the wealthiest, the most popular. The battle goes to the one who trusts in the Lord and that we need to learn that and to trust in you day in and day out as we face so many challenges in this world today. And we pray that you would strengthen us in our inner man by the Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.